Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Genesis 45, verses 4 to 11. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the last three Old Testament readings have corresponded to our three-part sermon series in the book of Philemon, uh, because the story of Joseph is a story of slavery. And what Ruth just read is the final aspect of Joseph's story where he is reconciled with his brothers who sold him into slavery. And God redeemed his slavery. That's a very important part of the story, that what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. It wasn't that God thought slavery was good, but God redeemed it for his purposes and his glory to preserve the people of Israel and the descendants of Abraham. I'd like to recap so far what we've covered in the book of Philemon, since this is our last and third and final sermon. In verses 1 through 7, Paul opens with a prayer, first praising Philemon and thanking God for the love and faithfulness he's shown to Jesus and his people. He and Philemon Paul emphasizes our partners in ministry. In fact, all of God's people are equal partners in the Messiah. In verses 8 through 16, we covered last week, Paul makes this bold request by saying that Onesimus is now a member of God's family. His appeal to Philemon is that he receive Onesimus back as more than a slave, but as a beloved brother in the Lord, and be reconciled. He asks Philemon to make Onesimus his social equal. And then finally, today we'll cover verses 17 through 25, where Paul models his message of the reconciling love of God, which he talks about not just in Philemon, but in all of his letters, by standing in the gap between these two hostile parties, Philemon and Onesimus, and absorbing the cost of their restoration. So let's read it together, verses 17 through 25 in the book of Philemon. The word of the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that 
to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given or released to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, now we thank you for this, your word, and we ask you to prepare our hearts, not to receive my thoughts, but to hear your voice. We pray, O oh God, that you would meet us at our point this morning of greatest need, till the soil of our hearts, so that we might welcome the seed that you would grow. Lord, change us together that we might be a collective prophetic voice in the context of our homes, schools, businesses, and city. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, raise your hands if you've ever mediated between two parties at odd with each other. Maybe they were friends or family members or coworkers. It's likely if you did serve as a mediator, you did a lot of, well, they're, they're saying this, and that was wrong from their perspective. And maybe after hearing how that person responded, you went back and you told the other person, well, they said they're sorry you felt that way, but they didn't mean it like that. Because, and that wasn't really what was going on. And maybe trying to be the peacemaker, you played the advocate for the other side in your back and forth and said something like, well, Jim, Bob does kind of have a point. I can see how he would interpret it that way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you're like most people in a situation like that, you try to stay impartial and you try to stay neutral. I used to have a friend growing up, when there was a conflict between others, he would say, my name's Bennett and I ain't in it. And we understand that, right? We do not, if we're mediating between two people, we do not want to become part of the conflict. And so it's a hard thing to do to sort of be the go-between. But often mediation stalls out because the mediator is simply a go-between and never really offers any insight or makes any judgments between the two hostile parties. When this happens, the person who is the go-between is really just a liaison, a voice of communication who wants to keep their friendships with both people so that when it's all over, they'll still be liked. And so they're careful to tread very lightly. Marriage counseling breaks down sometimes when one party feels that the counselor is on the side of the other one. Maybe a woman may feel like a male marriage counselor takes the side of her husband, or a husband feels like a female marriage counselor takes the side of his wife. And things can stall out. 
What really happens often is that the person doing the mediation has no real desire or ability to go beyond the medium of communication. I mean, imagine if a marriage counselor said something like, I'll tell you what, uh, I'll come over on Thursday night, I'll watch the kids do the dishes and vacuum the house, and you guys can go out on a date, and I'm really gonna become part of this change we're working for. It just seems impractical, right? You just, you can't do that, especially if you've got a, a big caseload, you've got lots of clients, you just can't do that. And we understand that that is impractical. You don't wanna let someone else's problems become your own, you've got your own life to live. At least that's usually the way things work in our world. But what Jesus did is not just give us advice how to be restored with God, but he stood in the gap and absorbed the cost of our reconciliation to our Heavenly Father. Jesus did not say, well, from my opinion, here's how you can work things out with God. This is why the gospel is not like a moral recipe. The gospel is not just, you know, if you live right, if you do what God likes, then God will accept you. What happened fundamentally through the gospel and life and ministry of Jesus is that Jesus stood in the gap and absorbed the cost of our reconciliation. Isaiah 53's prophecy about the Messiah says, he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And so Jesus did away with the hostility and alienation between us and God by absorbing the cost of that reconciliation. We owed Jesus, we, excuse me, we owed God a debt because of sin and Jesus paid the debt. Now we call this theologically penal substitution or substitutionary atonement. I don't have time to go into that this morning, but essentially it's the idea that Jesus stood in the gap for us. Well, nowhere in the letter of Philemon is the crucifixion of Jesus mentioned, but it is modeled. Paul models his message of reconciliation and the reconciling love of God by standing in the gap between these two hostile parties, Philemon and Onesimus. And he becomes, in a sense, Jesus to these two hostile parties by outstretching his arms and grabbing hold of each of them and being willing to absorb the cost of their hostility for, rest, for the sake of restoration. In verse 17, Paul says, So, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me, and if he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge that to me, I will repay it. Here in this request, we really see the heart of the gospel message being acted out. Because the gospel is about reconciliation. I mentioned in the beginning of the book of, when we started the book of Philemon in our first sermon, that in all of Paul's letters, besides the theme of union with Christ, the theme of reconciliation is the thread that really holds his entire message in all of his writings together. And you can trace it 
in Corinthians and Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, you can just trace this idea of reconciliation all throughout Paul's writings. And for good reason. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, In the Messiah, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And because of this, we call Jesus our mediator. So I talked a little bit about the difference between a liaison and a mediator. Jesus is not a liaison between us and God. He's a mediator. He's more than a go-between. He is the one enabling the reconciliation between two parties. And in this situation, Paul is putting himself in the place of Jesus. I've always been fascinated by hostage negotiators who attempt to mediate between you know, the, the hostage taker, maybe inside of a bank, and the police and the SWAT team lined up outside who are ready to do their job at all costs. I mean, it's interesting that there is even such a job, a hostage negotiator. And I don't know if it really happens this way, but I know in a lot of movies I've seen, the hostage negotiator sometimes is willing to go in there unarmed and risk his own life for the sake of saving the lives of not just the hostages, but the hostage taker. So that there can be a peaceful resolution, he may go to jail, but at least no one gets hurt. Because if that SWAT team rushes into the building, there will be blood. Paul, is willing to absorb the consequences of Onesimus' wrongdoing. He wants to pay the cost so Onesimus can be reconciled to Philemon so that there won't be blood. You might say, well, what do you mean there won't be blood? The penalties for a runaway slave in the ancient world were severe. They could include death, They often included severe punishment and beating. Sometimes it would leave a slave permanently maimed or crippled. But Paul doesn't want there to be blood. He steps in so that the consequences of Onesimus' actions and the consequences that Onesimus deserves from running away, according to the law in those days, The consequences are placated. It is an incredible illustration of the gospel, and that's why this book, which is only 25 verses long, is maybe one of the most explosive things the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Because it is one big, lived-out illustration of what the gospel is. Now, some of you thinking theologically may say, look, the gospel isn't something we do, it's something we proclaim. And I just want to say, yes and yes, it's both. The gospel is something we proclaim because Jesus did for us on the cross, but it is also something that we embody as we engage and interact with one another and others. We embody and engage what the gospel is and what it means for human relationships because God's heart is not just reconciliation between God and man, it's reconciliation between one another, which is harder. That's not a question. I'm saying it's harder. Reconciling between each other is harder, but 
The pretext for Paul's actions and words is this idea that the ground is level before the cross. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and in this sense, Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon are all equal partners in what they partake of. They are sharing equally in the grace and mercy of God. They're sharing equally in what God is giving out. No one is righteous. And for this reason, Philemon and Onesimus can no longer relate to each other as master and slave. They're both in the family of God as forgiven sinners. And I think this is helpful for you and I as we think about other people. As we think about people who commit sins that not only grieve God, but grieve us. And I want to say that every one of us in here, there are pet sins, not just pet sins we commit, but there are pet sins morally that grieve us more than other sins. And we may find it hard at times to show mercy and grace to people who do things that we find abominable. And every one of us have things that we find abominable. It's a cliche, but it has endured all these years because it's a true cliche that, but for the grace of God, there go I. But for the grace of God, you might be someone who partakes in some of those abominable sins. Things that we just scratch our head at and want God's judgment to come swiftly against another person for the things that they're doing. And that is understandable. There are obviously things that grieve us, but we have to remind ourselves that the ground is level before the cross, which ought to enable our witness and our evangelism to want to see wicked people redeemed, to want to see wicked people reconciled to God. It's not easy. You have to pray for it. You have to ask God to change your affections and change your heart because it can be hard to want to see sinners sometimes receive mercy. But they're all in the family of God, and this is where Paul is getting the energy of his words in this letter. And it's why Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 3.11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So how can we as forgiven sinners model the message of the reconciling love of God? Well, number one, I think the way that we approach redemptive conversations with others is a start, which means in a day and age of anger and hostility at, at the church for what people think Christianity is, and once you start talking with people, you'll soon find that often what they think Christianity is is not really what it is. They have a preconception or a notion of what the gospel and the Bible is all about, but one way that we can model the reconciling love of God is to be willing to absorb the hostility towards the church or Christianity that other people may have by sitting graciously, talking, and listening. I, I think it's good for us to defend the gospel. I think that's good, but defending the gospel 
doesn't mean that the posture of our heart is like a boxer coming into a ring with his dukes up. Defending the gospel often means being willing to actually put your guard down and absorbing the hostility that someone may have before you can have a real meaningful conversation because sometimes people just want to be heard. We can come to the table with open hands, willing to listen and willing to endure whatever emotional hostility may exist from people. You know, the sort of fortress mentality, let's barricade us and our children away from the wicked culture, isn't working. I'm telling you, it's not working. It is not working in our country. And if we're not careful, we're gonna become like Europe where these beautiful cathedrals that took centuries to build are now empty. Because Jesus didn't have that kind of fortress mentality. Jesus went out vulnerably into the world, into the culture, and spent time with people who may have been hostile to his message. And were certainly hostile to God in their actions and their sinful actions. Now the answer is not compromising the culture, naming what the Bible calls as sinful as not sinful, which is the route some churches have taken. How can we sort of win the culture? Well, let's just acquiesce to whatever their demands are and sort of just go along with the culture, right? That's a that's compromise. That's not what God calls us to. No, the answer is engagement rooted and grounded in the reconciling love of God, which loves sinners because we are sinners saved by grace. This is, this is something you just have to keep in the front of your mind at all times that God loves sinners like us and it behooves us to act like God. If God engaged us, then this says something about the very character of God that when we were hostile, God still reached us and sent his son to die for us. For Paul, being reconciled to God meant working to reconcile others to God. Onesimus' conversion. And reconciliation between, o people, between other people, Onesimus and Philemon. In verse 21 he says, confident of your obedience I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you or released to you. And it may seem just like... Uh, some weird closing details of a letter, but the truth is, what Paul is saying, I hope that you'll do more than I asked for, and I'm gonna come visit you. I'm going to see if you did it. I'm gonna check up on you, Philemon, and your little house church there, because I wanna see how it all worked out. That's what he's saying. Prepare a room for me, because when I get released from this prison, I'm coming your way. It was like, trust but verify, you know? I trust you're gonna do the right thing and I'm gonna follow up with you, just to make sure you did. You know, he's sort of putting the screws to Philemon and if this letter, like we said last week, was read publicly, Philemon's on the spot. He's being put on the spot. And it might be tempting to think that Philemon did what was being requested of him simply out of pressure and certainly, Philemon feels the pressure that Paul is putting the screws to him. 
But we fail to interpret this correctly if we simply look at Paul's masterful way of getting what he wanted and not recognize that there's something else going on right here. There's something else going on here. Paul, he did care about making his positions clear to Philemon and the church. He did care about making his moral positions clear to people. But he wanted to do it in a way that it became embedded in their character and not something superimposed from the outside. He wanted them to think Christianly. Nicholas Wright says, you've heard the saying, give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day, teach a man a fish and you feed him for life. Paul, again and again, worked on the principle that if you give someone a straight command, you get what you want them to do in that particular situation, but if you teach someone to think Christianly, you will enable them to grow as a human being and figure out for themselves what God might want them to do in quite a host of other situations. There are some churches and religious movements where the preacher of the denomination tells people exactly what they can and cannot do, and when they encounter a situation that has not been explicitly covered by their pastor or their denomination, they do the wrong thing. And so what Paul is trying to do is to get Philemon to think Christianly. Maybe the question isn't what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus want me to do? And this is the power of that passage of Scripture that says the letter kills but the Spirit makes alive because the Spirit working in us helps us to navigate situations that the Bible doesn't cover. And guess what? In the thousands of years since the Bible was written, a lot of scenarios and situations and circumstances have sort of popped up that the Bible does not seem to speak to explicitly. And we have to use the Spirit-guided discernment to do what might please God even though it is not addressed directly in Scripture. And this may be why, in the very end, Paul does not come outright and condemn slavery explicitly. Because that would be just another rule missing the motivation behind it. Slavery is wrong, don't do it. But if people like Philemon did not get the message that you ought to treat others with dignity and respect because they're made in the image of God, especially other believers, he'd, they'd, he'd completely miss the message. He wanted to get to the heart of the matter because the real issue behind slavery was a failure to love one another and to see all people from this new perspective before the cross as being equal as sinners. Philemon learned not just how to treat Onesimus, but that because he and Onesimus are now brothers, their master-slave relationship is totally irrelevant. It became totally irrelevant. And that changed how he thought about all relationships. The cross is radical. It is not just a program for how to get to heaven. It is not just do this and when you die, you'll go to the good place and not the bad place. That is not what the cross is about. It's, it's not less than that. 
But it is much, much more than that. It teaches us not just how to get to heaven, but it teaches us how to live on earth. It teaches us how to be truly human. It teaches us what it means to bear the image of God. This quote from Tim Mackey in conclusion, I hope stays with us. The family of Jesus' people is the place where all are equal recipients of God's grace. It's a new kind of society, or as Paul told the Colossians, a new humanity, where people's value and social status are not defined by race or gender or socioeconomic class, but in the Messiah, there are simply new humans who are equal partners who share together God's healing mercy through Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you now and pray that, Lord, over the last several weeks, as we, as we have thought through this 2,000-year-old relational rupture between a master and his slave, that we might be so impressed with the beauty and illustration of the gospel in that reconciliation. The reconciliation that Paul advocated for, which was predicated on the fact that both Philemon and Onesimus and Paul were all equally sinners in need of God's grace, and therefore any distinctions between them were irrelevant. Father, we pray now that you would give our hearts the understanding to treat each other with dignity and honor and respect. And when we hurt and offend one another, we would pursue reconciliation, not because it's easy, but because it's what the gospel means for us. Empower us to do this by your spirit and help us when we fail at it through your love. In Christ's name we pray, amen.